0: Good morning, everybody. Are you all hot enough yet? <laughs> um, and very sadly, I am now closer to 60 years of age than I am to 50 years of age. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? I don't know. But not really. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> Trust Lee. Um, Lee's second name is Barnabas, son of encouragement, you know. Um, but actually, you know, I have noticed that certain things are not quite as they used to be now. Um, um, my true hair colour um, has quite a decent sprinkling of grey in it. Um, every day, the number of people that I smile at and talk to without ever mentioning their name because I can't remember it, that—that that is That is growing, that list of people is growing longer and longer. Um, Bingo wings are sadly no longer just a group of chickens having a good night out for me. Um, And a full night's sleep is as rare as a politician giving a straight answer to a straight question. Um, Now, we all know that there are lifestyle choices that we can make to slow the ravages of time. But the best advice I ever heard was to marry an archaeologist. Because the older you get, the more interested in you they'll become. (laughs) Boom, boom. (laughs) So I went and married a laser physicist, never mind. Now, physical decline is, of course, inevitable in this life. But what I want to talk today about is, is about combating spiritual decline. A few months ago, even before this preaching series was mooted, uh, God gave me, and usually, a phrase. Not a passage, not a person, but a phrase. And that phrase was, fight the slow fade of faith. Fight the slow fade of faith. I've been living with that phrase ever since it's kind of been haunting me a little, and God's been speaking to me. And so I know that this word is for me, first of all, as it always should be for anybody claiming to stand up and preach God's word. Um, God is challenging me as to whether my love for him is as strong and as passionate as it once was. He's challenging me as to whether I'm keen for the challenge of the next step of my journey with him. You know, once upon a time at school, I was happy to be condescendingly called part of the God Squad by those people who didn't like Christians very much. At university, I was quite happy to make a fool of myself doing Christian drama sketches in the park as part of our university missions. And I quite regularly prayed the prayer, Lord, do with me what you want, and take me wherever you want me to go. And I don't want to run on automatic in my Christian life. I don't want that spark to fade. I've been asking God to make me want to long for more of him, just as David longed for God. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. I don't think I'm quite there yet. But I do know that God has got more in store for me and that if I want to see God doing things through me, then I need to want more of him in me. I also know that God wants more for this church and for the communities that we relate to and live in. And that if we seek him together, if we give ourselves to him unreservedly, then he will bring life in all its fullness. But... Sometimes we need to battle the spiritual forces that would suck that life out of us if they could, like the Dementors in Harry Potter, if you're into that. If we find ourselves drifting in our life or in our ministry, if we find ourselves becoming a little bit cynical, a bit distant from God, wondering what's the point of church or if you worship songs and the Bible have kind of just become words that you have nothing to do with your real life or if you're kind of getting fed up of praying because nothing ever changes then I think we need to pay attention to that it may be that we are in the middle of a slow fade of faith. It can happen to any of us at any age. This is not just an old age thing. There are many distractions in the world, there are many things that the devil would use to pull us away from God. I've been thinking, uh, sometimes with sadness and sometimes with joy, about the reasons. That I have seen over the years why people do lose their love for the Lord and why they sometimes gradually drift away from faith altogether so I'd like us to look at three of those this morning there's almost certainly others but these are the three that God has really been speaking to me about the first one is when we have unaddressed sin in our lives one of the saddest accounts in the Bible I think of a life and a legacy ruined by sin is the story of Solomon. He had so much going for him. If you know if you know about him you can read his story in 1 Kings chapters 2 to 11. There are 9 chapters there which cover a 40 year kingship over Israel. And it's so sad because he started so well and finished so badly. He became Israel after his father David's death. He knew that that was a result of God's goodness and that God wanted him to walk faithfully before him with all his heart and soul and to walk in obedience to his laws. Solomon didn't ask for much from God. All he asked for was that he would be given the wisdom to serve his people well and that he would be able to dispense justice with discernment. And God was so pleased with that request that God blessed his ministry and the nation under him with wealth and peace and international power and brilliant reputation. Solomon also knew God's loving kindness when he built the temple. He prayed an amazing, awesome prayer that showed that he knew that if we sin and come to God in repentance with a humble heart, he will forgive us. But in chapter 11, of 1 Kings we read these pretty devastating words for when Solomon was old his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow holy follow the Lord as David his father had done. We kind of read it and it's almost a bit of a joke. 700 wives, 300 concubines, how did he have the time? (sighs) But why did Solomon marry hundreds of foreign pagan wives against God's express wishes to the people of Israel? Why did he end up allowing them not only to practice their own religion privately, but to build places of worship for their gods and for their detestable practices, which even included probably child sacrifice, right next to the temple in Jerusalem? Was it because maybe he thought the laws of God somehow didn't apply? in his case? Was he unaware of his own weaknesses? Was he careless with examining the state of his own heart? Did he think he could engage in sexual and emotional intimacy without being influenced by those people? Did he believe that the ends, treaties which brought peace, justified the means? foreign royal alliances through marriage. Or maybe the rich, respected, sophisticated Solomon wanted to do things the culturally acceptable way rather than God's way. And maybe he thought that if he still offered sacrifices at the temple, God God wouldn't mind if he abdicated his responsibility to lead his people in the way of exclusive faithfulness. The consequences for his family and for the nation were absolutely catastrophic. The New Testament repeatedly warns us about the battle for our heart and our mind and about sin which so easily entangles, it says in Hebrews. Being desperate for the love and approval of others, being complacent about peer pressure and about how strong is the lure of a comfortable life can turn our heart away from God, like Solomon. And when we love him less, we trust him less. And we want what we want more. I have seen people pursuing what they think will make them happier than the way of obedience to God. And you know, they have had to harden their heart towards God in order to do what they know is wrong. It's a dangerous place to be, because having a divided heart is one sure way to hasten the slow fade of faith. But we can fight it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 to 29 in very dramatic language that it might take drastic action to combat sin in our lives but that it is worth it. And Paul told the Corinthian church not to be unequally yoked with believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a phrase that's sometimes a little bit misused but what he meant was not to allow someone who is not a believer in Christ to influence or to control our behavior and it might be quite hard to take the action that is needed. Um, When my youngest son realized that smoking weed was damaging his ability to find his way back to God after a time in the desert, he knew that he was going to have to cut out certain close friendships where that behavior was the norm or else he would never be able to resist being drawn back into that kind of life it cost him but it gained him so much more he experienced for himself the truth in 2 corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 where it says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret The second thing that I've observed causing people to lose their faith is um, unaddressed doubt. Now, unless we never engage our ears or our eyes or our brain, we will all have doubts and questions when it comes to our faith. It might be something we read in the Bible which makes us stop short and think, that doesn't sound right. It might be something we were taught when we were younger in church, and we start re examining it when we get older, and we think, actually, we may have been taught an untruth there. Or it might be the jolt that comes when we realize that society now thinks of Christians as bigots and haters, and that all our beliefs and dearest values are dismissed as nonsense. Or when we realise that we're not sure we actually believe some of the tenets of established Christian belief. Now there are a couple of unhealthy ways to deal with our questions. (laughs) Sometimes we can just try and squash them all down, not think about it too much because it's easier or we feel we're not able to voice those doubts or those questions in a church context. Maybe people will think we're a bit flaky or a bit dodgy. In fact, I really wish that some people who've had questions about things said from the pulpit here would actually feel able to come and talk about those things with the preachers so that we could seek truth together. Nobody has a monopoly on perfectly understanding God or the Bible. Let's talk about it. Because when we repress our thoughts and we try to carry on regardless, those thoughts are still there at the back of our mind. And the danger is that they slowly erode our faith in God. We become, first of all, embarrassed to speak out about Christianity because we can't defend it. And eventually, we come to think that it is actually indefensible and that we don't believe it ourselves. That is a slow fade. Another unhealthy way to deal with our questions, I think, is to take our culture's beliefs and values as our starting point and use them to analyse our faith. By doing that, we're allowing human beings to judge God when it should be the other way around. If we bring our own preferences and our cultural values to bear then we are recreating God in our own image, or we end up denying his existence altogether. I can't believe in a God like that. Instead of worshipping him for who he is. We are no better than the slave owners who used to physically cut out the book of Exodus from the Bible so that the slaves wouldn't read about a God who set his people free from slavery. And in the Christian media, unfortunately, it's quite common now to hear of prominent Christians who have deconstructed their faith, it's a new word, and have publicly rejected it altogether. Um, And by the way, if you want to listen to a really good talk on this issue of deconstruction, And doubt then uh, you can check out that one online Um, I don't know I haven't got a clue how you say his name but he's very good Um, and he was very helpful for me to um, to listen to that you see I don't think doubt is a bad thing in and of itself what it shows is that we do care about truth and that we want to grow When we're motivated by a desire to understand and know God better, and we do that process with him, not turning just to his critics, but also to his defenders, then our questioning can lead us to greater faith and confidence. We have nothing to fear from looking at difficult questions. We need to let God be God and to seek him in his word and with the help of those who also love him and know him and are good at thinking stuff through. (laughs) You know, if the disciples had not been willing to let go of all their dearly held beliefs and traditions about the promised Messiah, they would never have been able to receive salvation from Jesus. If the early believers had not re examined all their religious devotion in the light of Jesus fulfilling much of the Old Testament law, then we would still be sacrificing animals and being circumcised. C.S. Lewis, as so often put it really well, he said, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that this shattering is one of the marks of his presence? And the incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. The last thing that God has impressed on me over the years is the way unaddressed hurts can lead to a slow fade of faith. I've got a spider. I've known people to turn their back on God because they feel let down by him and or by his people in the church. One of them was a young woman whose Christian parents had punished her harshly when she was a child. One of them uh, was a young man whose church-going girlfriend toyed with his emotions and eventually dumped him. Uh, One was a woman who felt that God had told her to marry someone with whom married life proved to be very difficult and she got no support with that. Another one was a man who was present at a terrible disaster involving children. And yet another one that I know turned his back on faith when he sought God and God seemingly remained hidden and silent. These are real disappointments. These are real hurts. And Philip Yancey wrote a very honest and sensitive book about all of this called Disappointment with God. If you've never read it, um, I recommend that you do, especially if you are struggling with those inner hidden hurts that we all have from time to time. And if you're asking the question, why has God not prevented my pain? It's such a difficult and a complicated and sensitive topic that all I can really do here this morning is flag it and say what you're feeling is a real feeling and it's okay to feel like that as long as you please take it to the lord and don't just let it fester and talk to somebody you trust if you think you cannot just do it between you and the lord philip yancey when he was faced with somebody walking away from faith for some of these reasons He took himself away for two weeks and read through the bible cover to cover just so that he could actually rediscover the god of the bible and see what he was like in all of this and he discovered a god who experienced pain and disappointment and hurt at our rejection of him for centuries so i will just share a few things from the book of job which might give you some hope this morning if you're feeling hurt, Job, as you may know, was a man who suffered hugely through no fault of his own. The book of Job doesn't shy away from the fact that life is unfair and it is difficult. The Bible does not deny that. Job's friends tried to help out and made things worse by insisting that the world was working as it should. And so therefore, Job must have done something wrong to deserve such pain, and God rebuked them for it. You know, Jesus came to defeat the spiritual powers of sin and death that hold us away from God. And one day, he will return to put things right in this world, but that time is not yet. So for now, we live with pain and hurt. Job complained, he argued, he cried out in bewilderment at God. He got to the point of despair and giving up on life itself, but he did not give up on putting his case before God. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him, even though he was angry at God. (laughs) We can either turn away from God, or we can cling to him as the one person who can see us through and whose love will never give up on us. And there were unseen spiritual events going on. We sometimes skip past the very first part of the book of Job. But there was something going on in the heavenly realms that Job was not aware of. And in fact, what Job didn't realize was that God had put his faith in Job to put his faith in God when he didn't understand what was going on. Pain narrows our vision down to ourselves. But we need to lift our heads and realize that even the smallest, weakest act of faith is a witness to the powers that be in the universe. I don't understand that, but I would get glimpses of that in Scripture, and I know it is true. Job wanted answers, and for a long time he got none Philip Yancey says the kind of faith God values seems to develop best when everything fuzzes over, when God stays silent and when the fog rolls in. This is not the kind of faith that topples Goliath or moves mountains. This is the kind of faith that trusts in God no matter how little evidence there is at the time that he can be trusted. It is faith and when God did at last respond it was not with answers but with a revelation of himself that brought Job to his knees and we have the privilege of being able to look at Jesus who suffered and cried out his sense of abandonment as we do and who understands what it is to go through tragedy to darkness, to triumph. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, it says in Hebrews 12.3. And if you have been grievously hurt by those who profess to love the Lord and should know better, look again to Jesus who forgave his tormentors even as he hung on the cross. Let it go. That's the only thing I can say to you that would make any difference. If it's been weighing on you for too long and making you bitter and resentful and unfruitful, then let it go. And finally, I just want to say a word to those of us who do not have unaddressed sin or doubt or hurt impacting our walk with God right now that's a good place to be. But there's a question the Lord has been asking of me, and so I'm going to ask it of you. Are we there for our brothers and sisters as we hope they will be there for us when we go through these things? When we hear of somebody going off the rails or drifting away to another type of community because of their doubts and disagreements or questions... Or if they withdraw from church because of some fuss or other, or because of tragedies in their life, do we shake our head and say how sad and shocked we are because their faith used to be so strong? Or do we draw alongside them in humility and gentleness because that could be us? sometimes feels, and I know that I have been guilty of this, as if we have an out of sight, out of mind attitude. But the good shepherd in Luke 15 was so upset by the absence of one sheep out of a hundred from his flock that he left all those others to go and rescue it. You know, if someone here right now or at home felt so convicted by the Holy Spirit that they walked out right now to go and tell someone that they care and worry about them, I would praise God for that. Because you would also be fighting the slow fade by listening to his call to love one another as I have loved you. Excuse me a minute. Lukewarm. Not what you want on a hot day? Is that a bit extreme? Revelation chapter 3. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. That's the word of Jesus to Christians, who are not going mad or, you know, sinning really badly. They just thought they were okay. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. But you know, God is so, so good. That's what this table has all been about today. What does he go on to say? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see what can we give God that would possibly buy those things nothing except repentance nothing and those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent and here's the promise here I am I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He wants to give us what we need. If we don't even want more of him, but we want to want more of him, that is enough. If we can repent, if we can seek him with all we have, if we can come to him with our doubts, our questions and our hurts, and say to him, please come in, come in and eat with me, and give me what I need, please, then he will do it. All we need to do is ask.